Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three conversations from this week's podcast on why the Nash market will develop differently than the Staten market did. In this conversation, panelists discussed how the lack of clear, simple test results that can quantify and track disease make Nash so much more challenging to treat than dyslipidemias where the tests are simple and the ratios are equally so. Significantly, the lack of simple tests will also limit how many patients are likely to be treated and tracked with medications, another difference from statins. The history of the statin market has figured prominently in drug pricing and reimbursement discussions for years, so it is important to understand that these are vastly different situations. Sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. The fact that payers have greater influence and it has already pushed care in different directions, a lot more focused on guidelines, for example, has the ability even now for us to start to shape how people think about NASH and NAFLD patients differently. So, Louis, the example you gave on your good news, right, about increased screening. But if we educate on all the meanings of the links between NASH and T2D, if we educate that the transition from NAFLD to NASH in a T2D patient has something to do with insulin sensitization, for example, that might, before you ever get a NASH drug, change the drugs that you treat the patient with for the diabetes once you know that NAFLD is present. Now, we haven't cost the healthcare system much money, if any, and we've probably saved it in terms of improving cardiovascular outcomes, even if no one's looked at that specific dimension yet. And by the way, we've risk stratified patients all in one fell swoop, and we've done that without ever talking about an ash drug. I wonder if there are situations, like that that's one that comes to mind. If there are other situations that we know of now, where without thinking about the drugs we're going to get, but the armamentarium that everyone has to play with today, given the idea that it's demonstrated that non-invasive testing for T2D patients is cost-effective today, and the drugs aren't there. So what can we advise about how people think about treatment differently, even in the advance of drugs? This serves to those purposes, stratify population, demonstrate health benefits and cost benefits, and start to convey a little more about the complexity of the disease and the good tools that we have around diagnosis and stratification and patient identification. Well, let me just counter that, Roger, because there is some differences between lipids and NASH. Lipids, pretty easy. You get a lipid panel. It's elevated. Everybody knows that there's a certain certain threshold of LDL when you look at personal history, you look at their comorbidities, you can calculate an ASCVD risk score. There's a threshold for which we accept LDL and lifestyle modification or non-conventional, non-medical therapy. And then when we need to start a statin or even go to, you know, maybe a PCSK9 or a combination therapy. The problem that I see with NASH is there's, there's not a perfect test to identify who is at risk for NASH, who has NASH with fibrosis. There's a myriad of blood-based tests, some of which are free, some are proprietary, and then there's quite a few imaging options available. And my guess is there's anywhere from 10 to 20 different algorithms somebody could pick from to begin to stratify. A lot of people want to hang their hat on FIB4 as a screening tool, but remember, that just excludes F3 disease and F4 disease. We all know from the five meta-analyses that have been done that F2 or greater is actually where you begin to see increased risk of both liver-related mortality and all-cause mortality. So then tools were developed to look at F2 and greater. Well, that's NIST 4 the FAST score, and others. But those require combinations of imaging and blood-based tests or proprietary in nature. So we're trying to work through the simplest possible 
acceptable way to screen because we've learned from the hepatitis C issue that even if you have a simple blood test to measure an antibody and confirm with a PCR, that providers in general have done a poor job of testing the right patients. That's why we put out all kinds of guidance on if you've had a blood transfusion prior to 1992, you've ever shared clippers, razor blades, toothbrushes, you've been in the service, you've been a healthcare worker, you're a person who uses drugs, even if they're intranasal drugs, to go get tested. If you're HIV, get tested. Those guidances are are ubiquitous now. But with fatty liver, you know, even if we say test every diabetic, well, the first principle in liver disease is people look at liver enzymes and liver chemistry tests and ALT. Well, heck, we know the more advanced liver disease you have, the more likely ALT is actually going to be completely normal. You are near two patients you screened. I bet you their ALTs were potentially in the normal range. Maybe not, but we all know that that's common in the setting of cirrhosis. So even if it's not cirrhosis, we know that intermittently liver enzymes can be normal in the NAF, NAFLD and NASH population, even with advanced disease. So then we just say, we'll get an ultrasound. That doesn't help. So we're down to more advanced imaging modalities. And the ones we have currently available are either relatively cost prohibitive with poor reimbursement or, you know, an MRI is not on every street corner. And even if you have an MRI on every street corner, they're not spun up to the point where they can do PDFF or MR elastography multi-parametric MRI. We need to understand that it's a bit different than, than a statin from the sense that, or even hep C therapy, where, where we don't have a simple test to diagnose. And so we have to get at this through sequential testing, because we know sequential testing decreases the indeterminate zone. But what's the right sequential test combination? You know, easel guidance just came out. That's there, but that's, again, relying on potentially fiber scan, which again, in the U.S., there's a lot of them, but a lot is 1,700. It's, it still leaves large white spaces in the U.S. where, where that tool isn't readily available. The struggle I have and the struggle that I think everybody on this podcast has or that listens to it is how do we deliver a very succinct, clear message to patients, to primary care, endocrine and gastroenterologists, who to screen and how to screen in preparation for that first FDA approved drug. To me, that's a big difference between statin and NASH therapy. And just my quick thought on what I heard from Michelle, Louise and Stephen is we're not going to be treating everybody who has fatty liver on ultrasound. I think this is a very important message and it's not like in the cholesterol field where everybody jumped on the elevated cholesterol. I think this is an important message. We are working on refining those patients. In the end, it's going to be a, a very relevant but most likely smaller subset. Yeah, and I think if I was personally a payer, I would be looking now for those that I can remove from that pathway and detect earlier, I can actually remove from the cost of those medications in the future. And therefore, by looking earlier and being more succinct now, we can change the cost profile because these are not going to be cheap medications and they are going to have to be very targeted which is one of the reasons all of this great work's going on. What struck me and we talked about the Spanish study that used Fibroscan the other week and there were lots of limitations and faults with that study. However what they did do was discuss the cutoffs for CAP for example and I think they used three cutoffs. They used 250, 220 and 280 for different levels and I think when I do wellness scanning I'm used I'm sticking very much to the meta-analysis which is over two and a half thousand biopsies but we have yet to fully define what a healthy liver looks like and a non-healthy liver by fiber scan what we do is by biopsy on high risk and concentrated patient portfolios because we're not of 
obviously going to be just biopsying lots of normal livers. The risks are too great. So the school's out on what would be a normal fat content in most people. But we know what, where we start to get to 280, where it becomes highly indicative of that level of fat on a fibre scan. So is this what we'll find on a biopsy? If we can refine more that sort of period, it would help primary care physicians. It will help diagnostics in the secondary care setting. And people can have a clear level. So maybe going back to starting where we have fat, we know what it is in MRI, PDFF. We know ultrasound is very crude at 30%. But we can start to refine those levels and in keeping with statin levels and cholesterol and things like that, because people have to remember, and particularly patients, that 80% of our cholesterol production is produced by the body and the liver particularly. So we can't necessarily ingest all of it. But lifestyle is very much part of the current and future management. I just wanted to circle back to what Stephen was saying earlier, and I completely agree. The real thing that we need right now ahead of a treatment for NASH is we need to have a simple message that can be disseminated to the people who are seeing these patients who are at risk for NASH. These are our endocrinologists, these are primary care, these are our subspecialist cardiologists as well. Because right now I spend most of my clinic seeing patients and uh, kind of going through this at a high level. Someone has incidental hepatic steatosis and they get immediately referred to me. Now, if I saw all of those patients, I would have no time to do anything else. It would be impossible. So this risk stratification really needs to happen before they come in to see the hepatologist. And that is where the real struggle is because I'm glad when I get patients referred for hepatic steatosis because most people are just ignoring it completely. So that's a positive, but at the same time, it's impossible. And I'm, I'm looking for the small relative proportion that are going to have liver outcome. And everyone else, we talk about improving metabolic health, but they can get that from all of their other doctors as well. So I think that is really the crux that we as a group need to work on and really partner in a, in a team science way with our colleagues in endocrinology in particular and also in primary care to try and disseminate a rational approach to risk stratification for our patients. First of all, I think these are all great points. And pardon me if I'm oversimplifying, but one of the things I think, Stephen, you've impressed on me repeatedly on podcast is the idea that goes primary care is so overloaded with stuff they have to do that time to think or ability to integrate dramatically different patterns just on their part is just going to be a tough thing to make happen. Fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the principles that we were taught in the military, which I spent 29 years in, was you train and train and train so that when you're in the middle of what we would maybe a PG version would call the crap, you always fall back to your foundational level of training so that you may forget all the nuances, but you fall back to a common denominator and and that's what you rely on. To me, I think that same principle applies to primary care. You have 15 minutes to greet them, treat them, and street them. That's it. 15 minutes. And we all know, Michelle and Yorn and and even Louise can sit here and say, we all have the patient. I have a full clinic tomorrow. I go from eight o'clock to five o'clock with no break. And if I get behind a little bit, it throws the rest of the day completely off. That's why I quit doing liver biopsies before clinic. Just on the off chance that I have a complication, my whole clinic is shot. But fortunately that didn't happen, but it could. And we dread the patient that comes in, not the patient, but we dread the, the one that has the long list of complaints 
and you're like, I, I, you want to hear every one of them and you want to work through them, but you don't have time to. And the primary care guys are overwhelmed with heatest measures and trying to manage blood pressure and hypertension and cholesterol and obesity and aches and pains and arthritis. And, and then, oh, by the way, we have to get the mammogram. We have to get the colonoscopy. We have to do all the preventative care. Is there really time to talk about fatty liver, particularly when it wasn't taught to them in training? These guys were taught about diabetes. They were taught about nephropathy, neuropathy, but not hepatopathy. They weren't taught that they, they need to do screening of liver disease. So we have to make it simple so that they fall back to their lowest level of training, their minimal foundational skill set of what to do with fatty liver patients and who these are. And we talk about this all the time, but to me, the low-hanging fruit is, is a diabetic patient. And maybe we start there and we build this very common theme that if you're a diabetic, 70% chance of having fat, 40% chance of having NAD, 17 to 15 percent chance of having advanced liver disease and it's not about the lfts you know we've got to do something additional to look at these people carefully and i don't have the answers to all of this you know obviously it's something that a lot of us are working on collectively through our congresses through uh, patient advocacy groups like gli and fatty liver foundation and and others certainly something that litmus and nimble and lots of different institutions are looking at but i don't feel feel like that we've corporately come together to work as one unit to address this. And that's evident by the multitude of different pathways and algorithms that are out there. And it's too confusing to primary care to know what the right thing to do is in these patients. So then they end up doing what Michelle mentioned. Those that are really concerned just refer them all, which bogs everything down. And I'm not preaching to the choir here. You, Well, I am preaching to the choir. You guys know this. If a gastroenterologist sees one of these referrals and says, lose weight and exercise, but oh, by the way, I need to do an upper and lower on you in my ASC because you're over 50, you're white male, you have reflux, and I need to rule out Barrett's, or yeah, you're over 50, you need to have a colonoscopy. And then they send the referral back with lose weight and exercise. And oh, by the way, I did the upper and lower, everything looked good. I mean, what's the, that's a negative reinforcement factor for the primary care to not send more of those people up the chain. So you can't just educate primary care, we've got to have a a continued message to gastroenterologists as well about, look, when these people are referred, do the additional testing. And again, maybe that's a different algorithm once they get to that point, but it is what it is. We just need to keep the message incredibly simple to primary care. And then we have to figure out how to manage that funnel at the, at the tertiary care, secondary care level. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back on next Wednesday, July 21st, when Donna Cryer and friends take over the podcast to discuss clinical trial recruitment from the patient's point of view. It's a fascinating topic and a perspective we've not yet shared on this podcast. I loved it. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.